This is episode 164 of the Dear Discreet Guide Trouble at Work podcast. This episode is titled, Five Tips to Improve Your English for Non-Native English Speakers. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Dear Discreet Guide Trouble at Work, where we talk about work, working, and how to make work better. If it's work-related, we're on it. Who knew talking about work would be this much fun? I'm Jennifer Crittenden, a former CFO and host of the show. And thank you for joining our quest to improve our workplaces. Let's do this. Today we're going to be talking about five ways to improve your English if you're not a native English speaker. As many of you know, I've been offering these kinds of sessions in your American voice uh, to my clients for a number of years. And I find that sometimes people think that it's going to be harder than it turns out to be to actually improve your understandability. And I thought today I would just run through five tips to improve your English that really aren't that hard to implement. And you should see some pretty solid improvements in a short period of time. I know we always think about these tips as being like, oh, yeah, you know, people promise things. But I actually do think that these tips are helpful and can give you some quick hits in a short period of time. So number one is what we call syllabic stress. In American English, when we have a word that has more than one syllable, one syllable will be more dominant than the other. We'll pronounce that syllable with a greater amount of stress. And if you get it wrong, it can be very confusing to your listener. So let me give you an example that is a real life example that came up with a client of mine. Uh, As usual, my clients are usually very well educated, very smart, but you can make just a small mistake and it uh, really can throw off your listener. And this is what happened to us on this particular day. She was talking about a patent and I I uh, heard her say this uh, this sound several times in a sentence, and I wasn't quite sure, you know, given the context and that it was buried in with some other words, quite what she meant. I was finally able to isolate it and realize that she was talking about a patent. And so here's a two-syllable word where we emphasize the first syllable. And we'll talk about this in a second, but this actually does follow kind of a rule that we have in American English. And so then I was, and this is classic, right? Then the person that you're talking to says, oh, patent. It's like, oh, yeah, the light bulb goes off. And we realize that that's the word that you were trying to say. And so having the syllabic stress be correct makes a big difference. Uh, So the rule that we sometimes use is that when it's a two-syllable word in English that is a noun, we emphasize the first syllable. So patent instead of patent, as she was saying it. 
And so that's a tip that you can use pretty quickly once you realize, oh, this is a key point in English, which syllable gets stressed. And if I stress the wrong syllable, they're likely to misunderstand me or there'll have there'll be this, what, what? Oh, patent, right? You'll get that kind of reaction. Another rule that uh, kind of goes along with this is that Typically, we do emphasize or put the stress on the second syllable of a two-syllable word if it's a verb. And as like a lot of rules in American English, words don't always follow the rules. And so there are always exceptions. Uh, but let me give you a, a couple of examples here. One is the combination of record and record. So it's kind of nice when you find words that do follow the rules. So for example, you might say to somebody, I'd like for this information to be included in the record. And so there you can see it's a noun. It's a two-syllable word. And the first syllable is emphasized. So the stress is on the first syllable, record. I'd like this information to be included in the record. When you use it as a verb, on the other hand, record, now it's a verb and the stress is on the second syllable. So you might say, for example, do you mind if I record this meeting? So there it's a verb and the stress is on the second syllable. Doesn't always follow the rule, but in this case, uh, it does with record and record. So the stress depends on whether or not it's a noun or it's a verb, which is kind of strange. I'll give you another example here, and that's with uh, the noun present and the verb present. So we might say, for example, sit here for the present. For, the, for this moment, please sit here. And then uh, if you were to use it as a verb, you might say, I'd like to present you with this medal. So in the first case, it's present. The emphasis is on the first syllable. And the second one, it's present. The stress is on the second syllable. Following our rule where it's a verb, it goes on the second syllable. And this reminds me of a joke. Uh, there's a kid's book, uh, actually several series by Beverly Cleary, and one of her characters is Ramona, who's this really funny, mischievous, and you know, quick-witted. I think uh, when the series starts, she's about five, and when she goes to kindergarten, the teacher says to her, "Oh, sit here for the present, meaning you know, just for the time being, until I figure out what class you're in. Uh, please sit here." Well, Ramona thinks, "Oh, I'm going to get a present." And so she sits there very happily waiting for her gift to arrive, which she thinks is going to be her present, and then is really disappointed to discover that the teacher only meant just sit here for the time being. She actually wasn't going to get a present or a gift. So uh, a different kind of confusion between syllabic stress and one that obviously happened to a native speaker. So it can happen to the best of us that we get confused. But that would be my first tip is do understand what syllable is stressed and make sure that you get that correct. And then I've given you a couple of rules there. There are others that we might talk about on a different day. 
If you want to see from a dictionary where the stress is, any good dictionary will show you which syllable is stressed. But unless you know what you're looking for, it can be kind of subtle. So if you look at the dictionary, they'll usually put a little apostrophe in front of the syllable that is stressed. So if you go and check out Merriam-Webster online or Cambridge Dictionary, you should see that little stress symbol that's there. Many of the good online dictionaries also will have an audio recording, and that's even better because then you don't have to like figure out how you're trying to pronounce this with the stress in the right place and do it, do I have it right? But instead, you can just hear somebody say it, patent. It's like, okay, I get it. I don't even care which syllable is stressed. I know now how to say it. I would also caution you that there are many audio recordings on YouTube and some of them are wrong. I don't know if they're computer generated or what the deal is with them, uh, but, but I wouldn't go by those necessarily. Uh, but the dictionary recordings typically will be very good and you can rely on those. All right, tip number two. And this has also to do with stress but this has more to do with stress inside of a sentence. And this is one of the things that I find most important and yet often not talked about by us English teachers and people who have been uh, certified to teach English as a second language. We tend to focus on pronunciation and articulation and syllabic stress is of course very important, but we don't talk about rhythm or stress inside a sentence. And I actually find that this can be the most confounding. If you're listening to somebody talk and they're not getting the stress inside the sentence correct, it can really throw you off. And you can even lose the thread for quite a, quite a period of time and the words just keep coming and you're trying to get back in, like get reoriented to, to what's happening. And often what has thrown you off is just a little bit of a strange emphasis on words inside of a sentence. So inside that context of a sentence can uh, be very confusing. So let me uh, give you a couple of examples here. And I should probably mention that this is especially true for speakers uh, who come from India, for example, or don't have languages that are similar to English, where we can get this uh, stress wrong and really lose the thread, as we might say. And so I'll give you an example here, see if this works for you, where somebody says, so a native speaker, let me say it the way a native speaker would say it first, and then we can do it a different way and see whether or not you find that confusing. So I might say, for example, I'm speaking in Dallas this weekend. Notice how I emphasize the word Dallas because that's actually what I suspect the important piece of information that my listener will want to focus on. It's the thing that's probably unusual or the key piece of information. So I'll say, I'm speaking in Dallas this weekend. And so the listener hears wah, 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 Dallas. And they're like, oh, I get it. Right. So she's speaking. It's a thing. She's going to be in Dallas. That's kind of the key point, right? Now, if I get it wrong and I say I'm speaking in Dallas this weekend, that's a little strange. Like, 
what, what did I think you would be doing in Dallas? You know, it kind of throws you off. That wasn't what you were, that wasn't the word you were expecting to be emphasized. And in fact, what does that mean? Like you're emphasizing speaking instead of what other activity? So that's an example where just a small change inside the sentence kind of throws us off as to the whole point of the sentence and and why we're uh, giving that information at all to somebody. All right, so how do you learn what to stress inside of a sentence? Because this can be really tricky, right? It depends on every sentence. It depends on the context of the information that you're providing. It might even depend on the relationship between the two speakers. You're like, oh no, this is gonna be too hard to figure this out. Fear not. There's a really easy and great way to practice stress and rhythm inside of a sentence, and that is by copying other people. And this is a tactic that's used by professional speakers, by actors. It's something that I learned in particular from Meryl Streep, because when she is preparing for a role in which she is trying to copy somebody else's style of speaking, she will do what she calls singing along with a tape and you can do that too. So you can find a role model, for example, somebody whose verbal style you admire or want to sound more like, and take some recordings of that person. And then as they speak, you copy after them. And fortunately, with technology today, you can do that in all kinds of different ways. You can do it with your iPod, you can do it in your car, you can do it at home. But the idea is you listen to them say the sentence, you know, whatever it is, I'm speaking in Dallas this weekend, and then you say it the same way they do. And then you don't have to learn, oh, we tend to emphasize here or there or the subject. You just say it the way they do it, and it makes you sound very natural, like a native speaker. And also it can serve to help you use pauses effectively, stress effectively. It also gives you flow in your sentences, uh, which is something that we'll talk about in a minute. So that singing along technique is really powerful. I would suggest that you use that a lot and it will dramatically improve your English, how natural you sound, how much you sound like a native speaker. A couple more tips about that. I would suggest that you use actors instead of politicians. So politicians have often been polished and perfected to within an inch of their lives. And unfortunately, it can make them come across as kind of insincere or disingenuous. Or sometimes they just don't seem very likable or even very relatable. So putting politicians to one side, I think if you use actors, that can be very powerful. One issue with trying to copy people when they're speaking extemporaneously, like in an interview, or if they're just speaking naturally in conversation to a friend, they often don't speak very fluently. They will pause, they'll use a lot of filler words, um, ah. Uh, They'll repeat themselves, so they'll have moments of disfluency. So it's very hard for someone to just speak off the cuff very perfectly. And you really do want someone who's created 
good, solid, complete sentences that you can copy after them that don't have a lot of filler words or disfluencies in them. And really the way you get that is with actors and actresses. Fortunately, there's a lot of material out there, so you're not going to lack for material. But that's a couple of tips that I would say, stay away from politicians and try and find uh, actors and actresses who are saying lines that have been written ahead of time so that they sound very articulate and very professional in the way that they speak. Third tip. All right, this is typically what we focus on when we are helping somebody with their English and their accent and improving their understandability, and that is the sounds of English. Here is some good news that you may not know. There are only 44 sounds in American English, and that's not really very many. Also great news is that regardless of your native tongue, unless you're an alien or uh, somebody who's never spoken any language at all before, it's very likely that many of these sounds will come naturally to you. And I find with my clients, there's usually only about five or 10 sounds that they need help with, which is great news if you can just focus on those particular sounds, you can make a lot of improvement in a short period of time, which is really great news, right? It's mostly a matter of figuring out which of the sounds are troubling to you and then focusing on those particular ones. And that's where you can use drills or often what we call when we're teaching English minimal pairs. So if you have trouble with a P sound, for example, uh, you can compare that with the b sound. So you might be able to say b really well. And from there, you can go to a p sound. So those two sounds are really similar. The position of your tongue and lips and everything is all the same. The only difference is with the b sound, you're activating your vocal cords. So it's what we call a voiced consonant. And with the p, you're not. With the p sound. It's just air and it's plosive. You're using a lot of air, which is something that we'll uh, talk about also in a minute. And so to make sure that you get those sounds right, you can use what we call minimal pairs. So these are words that only differ by the particular sound that you're focusing on. So minimal pair, for example, between B and P would be bin, which the B, or pin, which is with the P sound. And so it's important because those two words mean two different things. You don't want them to get confused. And so you want to make sure that your B is really clear so that people know you're talking about a bin and that your P is really clear so people know you're talking about a pin. So these are the sounds where we work on articulation, the shape of your lips, where your tongue is, uh, where, how your jaw works, just to get those sounds of English correct. So I'd say that's our third tip is do focus on the sounds of English and getting those as clear and solid as you can so that when somebody hears that word, they know exactly which word uh, you're trying to say. But again, you can practice those. Once you have those in your mind, you can practice them while you're emptying the dishwasher, while you're driving the car or any activity where you're not, your brain isn't otherwise occupied. 
uh, again, you can really hone in on particular words. So if THs are hard for you, you can just practice words that have TH in them, those, that, the, until that position of your tongue to make the TH sound just comes really naturally. Or hard words, words like twirl. Some of these words are even hard for Americans to say. And so we have these tongue twisters, right, that we make up. So twirl is kind of a wicked word. It's got that TW and then it has two liquids, the R and the L in there. Or a word like that I find my clients often have trouble with, a word like world. So you've got the W, then you have the American R, which is kind of hard. And then an L, which for some speakers is a difficult letter to pronounce. And then the D at the end. So the whole thing is just kind of a mess. But as I say, you can work in your car and just say world, 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 world until that word just comes super naturally to you and, and as second nature. Fourth tip here, this is what I call flow. And this is something that you can learn also from the singing along uh, exercise. But I'm finding as I work more on flow that there are some really interesting tricks that we use in American English in order to create flow. And flow is something that makes our language sound very smooth as we go from word to word. It almost makes our English sound like music or poetry. One of the things about American English is that in general, we pronounce every letter that's spelled out. I know there are lots and lots of exceptions, but in general, we do pronounce the letters that are in the word, including the letters that come at the very end of the word or in the middle of the word. And so you can get a really hard word that you might practice over and over like extemporaneously wow, there are a lot of letters in that word. And basically, we, we pronounce essentially all of them extemporaneously. If that's a hard word for you, and that's a word that you tend to use in your work or in your life, and you want to say that word correctly or cooperatively, or you know, other words that are kind of long, they have a lot of sounds in them, then those are ones that you can work on, like I say, as you're emptying the dishwasher but also other sounds, other word groups that may be a little bit more difficult where you wanna work on flow. And we are pronouncing essentially all the letters inside the word, but one of the tricks that we use in American English is to kind of obliterate the space between words. And that's what gives our sentences this flow or this kind of music, this easy movement from one word to the next. For example, if you're a Mandarin speaker, you tend to speak with the words all chopped up. Many non-native speakers do this because there's a space there, right? So you think, hey, I should pause there because there's a space between these words. Actually, what we're doing in American English in order to speak quickly is we are eliminating those spaces between words. So we will flow from one word to the next and often we'll even kind of collapse those words into each other. What that does for us is allow us to speak quickly, but still very clearly. 
So we'll add uh, the ending of one word onto the beginning of the next word. And you'll hear people do this if you start listening, especially if you record people and start mimicking them. So we'll say things like, nice to see you. You know, it's not even clear that how many words there are in that sentence, right? Because everything's being collapsed together. And it allows us to just move our tongue easily from one position into the next. Just something I should mention, many of the sounds in American English are pronounced in the very front of the mouth. Some of them we just use our lips, right? Like B or M or P is that same way too. And then a lot of the sounds are pronounced with the tongue just behind the top teeth, like D and T and N and O. All of those are right in the front. So when we say something like, nice to see you, there's hardly any movement happening there. Our tongue is just barely moving from one place to the other. And that allows us to speak very quickly, but also with this flow, nice to see you, nice to see you. All very compact, very fast, but clear, right? Every sound that needs to be pronounced in there is being pronounced. All right, so that's flow. And then the fifth tip that I would say uh, for you is the starting position or what we call oral posture. Typically we think of posture being how you sit keeping your shoulders back, that kind of thing. But we also talk about oral posture, which is the position of your jaw, your lips, your mouth, your tongue, kind of a starting place. Or some people say it's like first gear uh, for when you are going to begin to talk in a certain language. And interestingly, for American English, the starting position or your oral posture is very relaxed. Everything is loose. We have loose lips. The tongue just sits in the bottom of the mouth. Nothing's under tension or pressure. It's very uh, casual. Nothing is contracted yet in order to say anything, which is really, I, I mean, it's kind of hard to do at first because you're, you're looking to be in a particular position. It's like, nope, just be relaxed. Just let your tongue hang out in the bottom of your mouth. Just let your lips be loose. But it means it's also very easy in the sense that there's nothing that you really have to remember. Some people I notice have some tricks for how to put you into an appropriate opening position to speak American English. And that is to yawn. So Oh, if you yawn, right, you take all that tension out of your jaw. Mm, everything just feels really loose and easy now. And so that gives you a nice opening position to speak English. In English, we also use a lot of air. And that's one of the reasons sometimes that you think that Americans are kind of loud is because we are loud. And it's partly because we're using a lot of air. And, you know, the typical place where we do that is with our H's, right? The huh, the how, all those aspirated H's that we often use. 
And so relaxing, yawning, and then also getting a lot of air flow through your mouth can also help you improve your American English. So sometimes you can do little practice exercises, breathing ex exercises like breathing out, <sighs> breathing in, <sighs> breathing out, even with a little K sound at the beginning, <sighs> or breathing in with a little K sound. <sighs> Keeps everything loose and easy. And then that puts you in a great position to do what we need to do when we, for example, just round our lips for our W's. Or just have small sounds like the mm or b or p. Nothing strong going on, not a lot of contraction. Everything's pretty loose and easy. That's how we want to speak American English with this relaxed, easy, lots of air, and easy going inside your mouth. Just small movements with the tip of your tongue often moving around. And most of our sounds are just in the front of the mouth. Couple of exceptions the American R, that is where we're putting our jaw under a little bit of pressure for that. Sound. There are some great videos out there about how to make the American R. And then a couple of sounds that we do produce more in the back of our mouth, like the ng sound, uh, like the ing sound at the end of speaking. So that's that ng sound, very nasal, blocking. The tongue is blocking off some of the air. Again, some great videos for those. But those are more the exception. Most of the sounds in English are just upfront, easy, casual sounds. And so the more you can be relaxed in your starting position for tip number five, uh, the easier it will be for you to improve your American English and develop what I call your American voice. So thank you today for listening and following along. And I wish you the best of luck improving your English. And please do let me know how it's going for you and whether or not these tips have been helpful. Thanks for listening, everybody. Well, the pandemic isn't really over, but it seems as though we've moved into a different phase where our lives have a bit more normalcy. As a result, we're adjusting the format of the show back to fewer, more lengthy episodes airing on Tuesday and Friday and sometimes on Sunday, since those Sunday literary episodes have been very popular. Speaking of which, our downloads have exploded during the pandemic, so thank you for your patronage. If you like what we do, you can support the show through our Patreon page. Another way to support us, which doesn't cost anything, is to follow us or like us on Podomatic.com, and that will help us increase our visibility. Also, we'd love to hear from you. Drop us a comment about who you are, what you like, or if you have a comment about the show. And finally, I also run a professional training company for people who want to advance in their careers with courses on communication skills, executive presence, and accent reduction. You can find out more at discreteguide.com, D-I-S-C-R-E-E-T-G-U-I-D-E. -E -E -E. Please take care and let's talk again soon.